Please be seated. And now if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This morning, verses 16 through 19. Why is the birth of Jesus good news of great joy? Well, because this world is full of bad news and great sorrow. What we've seen in Genesis is that God made all things very good. And in Eden, God placed Adam in a garden of paradise. And he was rich before he was born. And God made him a friend, even a wife, Eve, to share it with. Together, they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule it and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creeping things that creep upon the earth. But Adam and Eve, as we've seen in Genesis 3, fell. She was deceived by Satan, and Adam, undeceived, agreed to join her and Satan in rebellion against God. And with that disobedience, we saw, came shame, guilt, the fear of God, hiding from Him, hard hearts denying their own sin, Hard hearts blaming everybody else but themselves for their sin. And then last week we saw how God began to deal with the situation. He cursed the serpent in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. He cursed the enemy. And in doing so, he gave us the, the promise of Christmas. He gave us the promise of a male child to be born the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the enemy. That's Christmas, friends. Christ coming, being born, and then going to the cross for our salvation. So, we've seen these things. Now, how will God deal with Adam and Eve? What consequences will he impose upon them? That's what we're looking at today in verses 16 through 19. What did God do because of their disobedience? Let me invite you to consider it then from God's holy word, beginning in Genesis 3 at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Eve, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak that you would give the Holy Spirit and take by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and apply it 
to the church of God this day. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Amen. A little uh, illustrative context for a moment about consequences. There was a construction company uh, offering uh, to receive bids for a major project. And all things being equal, the contractor who offered the lowest bid would get the job. Bids were to be submitted in secret. And on the last day of the bidding, uh, one contractor walked into the office of the president of the company with a bid application in his hand. And to his surprise, uh, there was nobody in the office. It was empty. Uh, And then to his surprise, as he looked around, he noticed on the huge desk, Uh, the bid of a competitor. The only problem was there was a can of Coke sitting just directly over the most important part of the bid, the final bid number. Uh, He knew that if he could find out what that amount was, he could just make sure his contract bid was lower and he would get the multi-million dollar job. Well, he kind of nervously paced the floor for a little bit, knowing full well what's at stake. He contemplates moving the can uh, and uh, just for a second, and then he looks around, uh, making sure nobody's in the room, confident that he can pick it up quickly and catch the number and set it back. He does so, and when he lifts it, hundreds of BBs fall out of the false bottom of the can and roll everywhere all over the office. It was a setup. The contractor experienced the law of unintended consequences. He thought he could control the fallout of his dishonesty, cover it up and make it never be, but the can of soda just wasn't what it appeared to be. And that is the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden when they conspire together against God, a mess of unintended consequences, a mess of unexpected consequences, things they couldn't foresee. They certainly don't get godlikeness, like Satan suggested. They get instead what? Misery. They get misery. We live in a world of sin and misery. And misery is introduced here. Uh, In part, we've already seen some of that misery, sort of what we might call the natural consequences of their sin. You know the difference between natural consequences and and imposed consequences. We might illustrate it this way in personal family experience for a moment. But when the three-year-old is at the table, rocking back on his chair, putting his feet on the edge of the table to push hard, and you warn him not to do that, and he does it anyway, and he falls back and he slams on the ground, wild-eyed with fear and then injury, hurt. Well, he experiences the what we might call the natural consequences of disobeying his parent. This, this is what happens when you do that. When he's then dismissed from the table and doesn't get the rest of his dinner, you might call that the imposed consequences, the parental loving discipline. Well, Adam and Eve experienced the natural consequences of shame, guilt, fear of God, And now God imposes his own just punishments. Now, some might say, you know, it's never God's will for any of us to experience pain. Some people say that. Uh, Pain is from the devil. 
Uh, pain is in your imagination. Pain is, is anything but the will of God for us. But God here emphatically says, I will surely multiply your pain. Verse 16, in pain you will bring forth children. Verse 17, in pain you will eat from the ground that I curse. So, what do we make of all this? Uh, well, let's handle the passage with three questions. First, what are the woman's pains? Then secondly, what are the man's pains? And then thirdly, how do we understand and handle our own pain? And by the way, before we get to the woman's pains, just notice here that Eve is not cursed. And Adam is not cursed. That is, the language of curse in this passage is reserved for the serpent, verse 15. Cursed are you, God says. And verse 17 Cursed is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. But God doesn't say, cursed are you, Eve, or cursed are you, Adam. We'll come back to that thought. But what are the woman's pains here? She's going to have trouble in two significant family relationships. Notice the first. The the whole process of childbearing and rearing will involve pain and sorrow. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain In childbearing, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Multiply your pain here doesn't mean that before the fall, having children would have been a painful experience. And now it's just going to be worse. But but rather, pain is introduced here, and it is going to be a lot. And more than just the physical pain... The word can refer to emotional, uh, mental distress, heaviness, if you will, and sorrow. And, and so here, I, he doesn't just mean that, you know, at the point of labor and delivery, that's the only place where you'll have this pain. It, it may include all sorts of things related to having children, including her monthly cycle, trouble conceiving, infertility challenges. And for all but a small percentage of women who have access to modern health care, nine months, frankly, of perhaps wondering if she'll survive delivery because it exposes a woman to so much risk of deadly complication, and then enduring nine months of concern over whether she'll have a healthy baby born when she delivers. And, and more than that, years of nursing and feeding and changing diapers and wiping runny noses and potty training and endless piles of laundry, feeding, teaching, rebuking, correcting, disciplining, being disrespected. The heartache of raising perhaps a, a wicked and foolish child who was born in sin and may grow up with a hard, rebellious heart. Tearful prayers to the Lord for a child's safety and spiritual well-being. Thus are the sorrows multiplied, says Matthew Henry, as one grief succeeds another. And the passage points in that direction, that it's the whole process of childbearing and rearing from conception on. It's hard and dangerous. I think I read this week, 2.8 million women and children die every year in labor and delivery. Most of which is preventable under modern medicine, but most of the world doesn't have that. 
And raising children is wearying and befuddling and, and heavy. There are a lot of broken hearts among women. A lot of broken hearts among mothers in this world of sin. But then notice also, God says, her marriage relationship will involve degrees of, of, of conflict, tension, competition, neglect, abuse. End of verse 16, your desire, now look at the ESV, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean her desire will be against her husband. The ESV has done a bit of interpretation by choosing one way in which to translate uh, that word. It, it's usually translated in most of your translations for. It, it can mean uh, uh, against. It can mean that. It doesn't have to mean that. Yet I will say taking it as for has led some mistakenly to think that he means sexual desire here enters marriage for the first time as if that good gift had not already been given in the garden under the command that they should be fruitful and multiply as if uh, that kind of desire for her husband just suddenly appears in association with the fall into sin that's not the case and and frankly it, uh, as if it was true that every wife doesn't have this kind of desire for her husband which i suppose is every man's fantasy but more hollywood than a lived reality and if you take it as a good thing here, but not that thing, but you still take it here as a good desire in, in a, for her husband in a positive way, then I do think you're also left explaining why some wives uh, apparently have no interest in their husbands or lose interest and seek companionship elsewhere. I, I, this is not a promise that this will be true. But I think we should see this desire in some way as a negative, not a positive just as the whole passage is about the negative consequences of their sin. And I think whatever it is, we can safely say that every wife will have some internal struggle with uh, sinful desire that operates toward or against in relationship with her husband. Surely no Christian wife would lay claim to, well, uh, a sinless relationship with her husband. But what sort of sins here might this mean? It's an unusual expression, just a few words in the phrase, and uh, the other parts of the Bible help us here because it is used almost identically in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4 in God's warning to Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, at the end of verse 7, in the warning to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That language is parallel. Sin there, sin stalking like a lion ready to pounce. Cain is not to let it do it. He's to rule over it. Uh, he's not to let it have dominion over him. Well, back in Genesis 3, something, something unrighteous is going on, something not good. It may be that God is saying her sinful longings will involve a turning away from the Lord to be her all in all, from the Lord to be her shield and great reward, from the Lord to be her true master and messiah, 
And she'll seek those things from her husband in a way that, well, he was never created to be and she was not intended to do. Or it may be that she'll seek to be those things to her husband in a way that she was never meant to do, seeking to be more to him than God himself, seeking to dominate him like sin dominates people. Uh, Certainly in the language of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, in light of the gospel and the Christian picture of marriage we're given, I think we can surely say that she will have, even as a Christian woman, she will have her difficult moments of honoring and respecting and submitting to her husband out of a greater love and submission to the Lord. There will be challenges there. And I know that's true. I know that people object to the notion that a wife might want to govern her husband improperly, but I would simply invite us to reflect on the nature of sin in the human heart and um, the way in which it manifests in all of us in regard to the various ways we're all called to submission to others, whether children to parents, students to teachers, citizens to the politicians or laws of their land, soldiers to commanding officers, church members to elders or or wives to their husbands as we seek to live life together, especially in areas of disagreement where submission, of course, is put to the test. She may find in her heart here that she needs to repent and desperately needs the help of the Holy Spirit in order to love her husband without loving him like he's her God or she's his God. Now, I readily admit, as many a wife here, probably every wife here, will know more about the ways in which sinful desire expresses itself in her own heart and relationship with her spouse than I can articulate. And how ways in which she'll need to kill sin in order to live well. Uh, towards her husband. I mean, you'll know better than, than me if your sin is more the idolatry of expecting too much from your husband, which you ought to expect of God, or the idolatry of trying to be too much for your husband that he ought to seek in God. I'll leave it to you wives to consider your own hearts as you wrestle with what does it mean to be a loving wife in a fallen world with the consequences of sin and misery. But notice there's more here. Notice that the husband will mistreat her. End of verse 16, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Her husband will rule over her. And I don't believe we should see this expression as a good thing or as a command that this is what he ought to do. He was supposed to love her in the garden of paradise without sin as an equal and complement, one like him but certainly different, while filling the role of headship in their relationship, taking responsibility for her well-being by loving her and caring for her, nurturing her, cherishing her, protecting and defending her. I mean, he ought to have promoted her spiritual well-being. He ought to have strangled the serpent, even at risk to his own life. He ought to, let's just say it, love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
That's headship. Headship is taking responsibility to love your bride like Christ, the head of the church, loves his bride. But now he's going to use his strength and power and position to rule her, to take advantage of her. There will be dysfunction here in both directions. And for him, it's likely that he'll either be too passive, as many a husband is, leaving everything to her, or he'll be too aggressive or demanding, as husbands can be, impatient, unkind, perhaps physically, verbally, mentally, emotionally, sexually, spiritually. There's a lot of ways things go poorly among people because of sin. And that's a good reminder to us, I think, that we ought to just acknowledge that uh, look, if you're having difficulty in your marriage, it's unsurprising. If you have moments where mm, if you did what you want to do, your spouse would not be alive to be sitting here next to you. And some marriages, we know, things get out of hand. And if you're in a marriage where you're in danger, I'd urge you to speak to any of the elders or deacons here. We would want to come alongside you and help you and get you to safety. But things aren't going to be easy in marriage. And that doesn't mean, uh, don't tie it to the, the abuse I just mentioned. We could talk about that. But in principle, there's going to be conflict and hardship between the man and the woman And that doesn't mean we should just get divorced and start over because the grass is greener somewhere else. That is not the case. We need to remind one another that marriage is not a rose garden. It's it's work. It's not paradise. It's not heaven on earth. I don't care how great your marriage is, and I hope it's spectacular. I mean, heaven will far outshine. The enjoyment of union and communion and fellowship and love you'll have even with the spouse that you love now will be so much better, let alone everything else in heaven. No, in this world, things are not how they ought to be because we are not what we ought to be. And there's going to be pain and sorrow, God says. And then notice how the punishment fits the crime here. I mean, she became a grief to her heavenly father. And now she's going to experience grief over her own children. She distorted her relationship with Adam, giving him what God forbade, and now she'll find a distorted relationship with her husband continues as she led him inappropriately into sin, being part of the temptation to him to eat, as she gave it to him, now she will find him sinfully relating to her. All of these miseries, all of them, ought to be a reminder to her of the fall and a call to repentance. But then notice what are his pains, verses 17 to 19. And, and let me just say, having said it that way, they obviously share together in each other's pains. I mean, what husband who loves his wife and kids doesn't suffer heaviness in overlapping ways with his wife? 
regarding uh, pregnancy and child raising and merit, marriage conflict and what wife doesn't suffer heaviness in overlapping ways with her husband regarding the curse on the earth and death itself, which is what God articulates here to the man. Well, we share in these together, don't we? And then notice, notice uh, God begins by reiterating the reason for the miseries. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now, what's the point of that? God here isn't rebuking him because as a husband, he listened to his wife, as if no husband should ever listen to their wife. He's rebuking him because he listened to her bad, ungodly, unrighteous advice. I mean, the godly counsel of a wise woman is to be treasured. Uh, I hope if you're not married, you'll marry, young men, I hope you'll marry a wise, godly woman. I hope if you are married, your, wa- your wife is a wise woman, and I hope you wives seek to be wise women. Proverbs 31, right? A, w- a wife of noble character who can far- find she's worth far more than many rubies. The heart of her husband trusts in her. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of steadfast covenant love, the teaching of kindness, the teaching of mercy is on her tongue. Here, God God is pointing out, Eve was deceived and Adam was a fool to obey her when he knew he should obey God. That's the rebuke. And so there will be misery of toil. End of verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You know the expression, they say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, God had that figured out early on. Man's work, his exercise of dominion, just in the effort of feeding himself and his family, will be a frustration. When the ground does produce, undesirable things will grow. Thorns and thistles, verse 18, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. So the the inedible growth of thorns and thistles, which provide no nutrients, will rob, we might say, the earth of plant life needed for man's subsistence. And they'll grow easily and without effort in the face of all all the hard effort needed to grow the things that provide. Thorns and thistles are shorthand, of course, for all those problems we encounter, even as modern Americans who perhaps never farm or even garden. Automobiles rusting away, termites attacking your home, moths nibbling holes in your clothing, mold taking over Portions of your dwelling, computers crashing, all the, oh, all the, the hard things. And no longer will he be able to eat the choicest bounties of the trees of the garden, which were a delight to the eyes and good for food, and God had planted them, and they were ready to go. No, now he will eat the produce of the plants of the field outside the garden, And it will come at a cost, verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. 
things God says are not going to be easy for you. You'll work hard, perhaps, but lack the success of your labors. You'll grow weary at the end of every day, providing daily bread. And then, of course, there's the misery of death itself. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He who was created to subdue the earth will eventually be swallowed up by it. And notice again, the punishment fits the crime. God had made Adam, we might say, as a park ranger and a state manager, where everything was easy. Now he finds that the blessing of dominion becomes toil and sweat. The sin of verse 6 is that they ate was what was forbidden. Now in everything they eat, they'll have a reminder of their sin. And since the man scorned the life offered to him by God, he will suffer the death of which God had warned him. So you may ask, why does life feel bad? Why is there so much conflict in my relationships with my parents or between my parents or with my spouse or with my kids? Why, is, why does it take so much hard work and commitment and grace and forgiveness and repentance to get along? Why in life do we feel so inadequate for the tasks ahead of us and so incompetent in fixing things? Why do we put so much effort in and see so little return? Genesis is here saying to you, because God would have us taste Misery, to know the evil of rebellion. He tied it together. And that is a mercy. It is a mercy to be taught that rebellion brings pain. It's a mercy to be taught that obedience brings joy. So then how do we live? How do we live uh, here and not in heaven yet and understand and handle our own miseries? We'll close with this question and begin it with this question. Begin an answer to it with this question. If in verse 15, God cursed the serpent and gave Adam and Eve the first promise of the gospel, why does he now give them over to these miseries? Is God double-minded about them? How you answer that question will define your answer to the question of how we understand and handle our miseries. John Calvin, very helpfully in his commentary on this passage, frames the question and then answers it this way. It's a little long, super helpful. When God had before shown himself propitious to Adam and his wife, having given them the hope of pardon, why does he begin anew to exact punishment from them? Certainly in that sentence, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. The remission of sins and the grace of eternal salvation is contained. But it is absurd that God, after he has been reconciled, should prosecute his anger. And so Calvin goes on. 
For God does not consider in chastising the faithful what they deserve, but what will be useful to them in the future and fulfills the office of a physician rather than of a judge. Therefore, the absolution which he imparts to his children is complete and not by halves. He didn't half forgive them and then hold them in suspense. That's me, not Calvin. But Calvin, that he nevertheless punishes those who are received into his favor is to be regarded as a kind of chastisement which serves as medicine for future time, but ought not properly to be regarded as the vindictive punishment of sin committed. And that's a mouthful. Do you, do you see the issue here? If we believe the promise of the Redeemer was given to Adam and Eve, and the promise is given to us, and if we believe that Jesus answers the promise and takes the punishment our sins deserve, then how do I understand my own sufferings? Is God out to get me? Is he not for me instead of being against me? When the gospel says he's not against me, he's for me? Calvin says that God is a physician towards his pardoned children. He's a judge towards the rebellious. The great physician is healing his children of the poison of sin, and he's using the foul, this is my language, the foul, festering, putrid pus of infection to teach our hearts to recoil at the sin that brings such misery. In all these sufferings, says Calvin, God partly invites us to repentance, partly instructs us in humility, and partly renders us more cautious and more attentive in guarding against the allurements of sin for the future. So that the sentence to Adam and Eve was not a curse. God use that, didn't use that word. It was not a curse to bring them to ruin but a chastisement to bring them to repentance in fatherly, loving discipline, pruning them for heaven. Well, do you see God's mercy in this? Then I would say to you, be careful with your heart. The same pot of boiling water hardens an egg and softens a potato. Misery, that pot of boiling water, misery can make you hard against God in bitterness or soften you towards God in tenderness. It sort of depends on, by God's grace, how you respond. Satan seeks for you to be angry at God. God seeks to drive you to himself for grace to help in time of need as he disciplines those he loves. So let me just conclude this way. Let these miseries we all live wean your heart from the love of this world and from the love of sin and from the love of self and from the idolatry of children or spouse or worldly success and from ignoring the fact that you are destined to die and appear before God and so then, as we read earlier in Isaiah, let us hope. Let us hope in what is yet to come when sorrow and sighing will flee away. And so from now until then, let us trust in Jesus who stoops down to share our miseries. As Matthew Henry put it, how admirably 
the satisfaction of our Lord Jesus made by his death and suffering answered to the sentence here passed upon our first parents. And so he says this, did God curse or did the curse come in with sin? Christ was made a curse for us and died a cursed death. Did thorns come in with sin? He was crowned with thorns for us. Did sweat come in with sin? He for us did sweat as it were great drops of blood. Did sorrow come in with sin? He was a man of sorrows. His soul was in his agony exceedingly sorrowful. Did death come in with sin? He became obedient unto death. Thus the plaster or the bandage as wide as the wound. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. May the saints rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not spare Jesus, that we might be spared, reconciled, restored, and one day brought home to glory. Grant us all to trust in him. Forgive us our sin, trespass, iniquity, rebellion. Cleanse us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.